Welcome back to chapter 6 of the Oxford Audio Tour. In this episode, we're taking a stroll through Christchurch, where we'll be discussing two of the most famous stories in English literature, before heading up through the old Jewish quarter and to the city's oldest pub. There, you'll be welcome to stop off for a well-deserved sit-down next to the fire with a pint of local bitter, or perhaps an old chocolate. (laughs) A hot chocolate is what I meant to say. As you stand by the banks of the River Cherwell, as hopefully you are having just finished the previous episode, but if you're not, head over to the Oxford Audio Tour website and click on the tour map, you'll see exactly where I'm talking about. And what you will see depends very much on the time of year that you are there. In the summer, you may see a cricket match underway across the river at Magdalen College School, a private secondary school which has traditionally fed its bright and wealthy young students into Magdalen College. You're also likely to see young students rowing or punting along the river, Punting being perhaps the most stereotypical activity in Oxford. If you can't see one, a punt is much like a rectangular rowing boat with space for four to sit in it. In addition, one person stands at the end of the punt with a long pole, known in Oxford and Cambridge parlance as a quant. There are several places to rent punts in Oxford and most colleges have their own harboured at points along the river. It's a wonderful way to spend a sunny day, heading off with your pals to find a quiet spot to have a picnic and perhaps a few glasses of champagne. Though not too much champagne because you may well fall in, as um, I'm ashamed to say has happened to me. Funnily enough, it was on this very stretch of water that a very famous story was once told. It was told by a man called Charles Dodgson, who was a mathematics professor at Christchurch back in the mid-19th century. Dodgson was a bit of an unusual fellow. Various accounts describe him as quiet, shy, and almost reclusive. He had long suffered from whooping cough as a child, which had weakened him significantly and left him with a lingering stutter. His quiet disposition led him to avoid social interactions with his peers, though he was known to be close friends with the young daughters of the Dean of Christchurch at the time, a man called Henry Liddell. Liddell had three daughters, the youngest of whom was named Alice. On the 4th of January 1862, to celebrate Alice's 10th birthday several weeks earlier, Dodgson took her and her two sisters on a rowing trip up the river, from the grounds of Christchurch College to the village of Godstow, a few miles to the north. On the trip, Alice asked Dodgson to tell them a story to keep them entertained. Dodgson had done as she wished and embarked on this mad tale of a young girl who, after finding a rabbit hole tucked behind one of the trees along the banks of the river, tumbled through it before emerging in this unusual wonderland. Alice and her sisters absolutely loved the story, and Dodgson promised to write it down for them so that they could reread it and enjoy it to their heart's content. It did take Dodgson two years to make good on this promise, but in November of 1864, he provided Alice with this manuscript, entitled Alice's Adventures Underground, along with a note saying, A Christmas gift to a dear child in memory of a summer's day. Dodgson had also provided a copy of this manuscript to his friend George MacDonald, himself a father and well-known early author of the fantasy genre. He was not too surprised when MacDonald approached him with a proposition to illustrate the story and have it published. Initially, though, Dodgson was reluctant. He was a serious academic and was worried that an association with children's fantasy literature might affect his reputation, as indeed it would around a century later when J.R.R. Tolkien published The Hobbit and found himself ostracised among many of his academic peers. Ultimately, however, Dodgson was persuaded. Though to distance himself from the publication, he hid behind a pseudonym that he had once used to publish a series of romantic poems several years before. The alias was Lewis Carroll, a play on his real name. Lewis was the anglicised version of Ludvicus, Latin for Ludwig, and Carroll, 
an Irish surname similar to the Latin name Carolus, from which comes the name Charles. The story was finally published in 1865, and shot to overnight success around the country and later around the world. Despite the popularity of the story, Dodgson was very successful in hiding behind his alias, and as a result, most people to this day are still unaware that Lewis Carroll was not a real person. Welcome to the club. There was, however, one individual who was able to identify the man behind the mask. Queen Victoria was said to have been so impressed with the story that she wrote to Dodgson, firstly to express her gratitude for his work, and also to request an early copy of his next publication, whatever it might be. And Dodgson, of course, obliged. Upon his next publication in 1867, he packed up a copy and sent it to Queen Victoria. You can just imagine her excitement upon receiving this package, the first person in the world to see this world-famous author's new unpublished work. She ripped it open and set her side upon a brand new copy of Dodgson's as-yet-unpublished work. <clears throat> An elementary treatise on determinants with their application to simultaneous linear equation and algebraic equations. Dodgson was, of course, a mathematician first and foremost, though I'm not quite sure that that was what the Queen had had in mind. I ought to note that Dodgson himself did make very clear that this story was not true. However, lots of people still think it is and that he merely said that out of embarrassment. Who knows? In any case, it certainly is true that his next book was called, well, I'm not going to repeat it again for both of our sakes. If you have time, please feel free to pause now and take the slightly longer route south along the banks of the River Cherwell. It's a wonderful walk that takes you past the confluence with the River Thames, several college boathouses, and finally back along Poplar Walk until you come full circle to the main entrance of Christchurch. If you don't have enough time to spare, you can instead just turn and walk westward straight towards Christchurch's main college buildings. I understand that these instructions, that these directions may sound a little confusing, you can quickly head over to the Oxford Audio Tour website and you'll find a map that I've put together of this tour. We'll iron things out pretty quickly. If you take the long trip, this is going to be on your right-hand side. If you take the short trip, it's going to be on your left. You will see the large, untended area of Christchurch Meadow. In this area, you may notice two things. Firstly, a Bronze Age barrow or burial site, which dates all the way back to 2000 BC. It's quite close to where you were standing next to the riverbank. It's really not too far into the meadows, but keep your eye open. It's basically the only small hill that you're going to see in there, so you, you, you ought to be able to see it if it's not too foggy. You may also notice, depending on the time of year, a herd of long-horned cattle, each costing Christchurch in the region of £80,000. I've always liked to think of these cattle as decorative. As you're walking up to Christchurch, let me tell you a bit about it. As I mentioned earlier, it was founded as Cardinal's College in 1525 by Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, a key figure in England's social and religious history. Wolsey had held various positions of increasing power and significance under King Henry VIII, most notably Lord Chancellor and Papal Legate, making him the second most powerful person in England after the King. Using funds from the dissolution of nearby monasteries, Wolsey had planned the establishment of a new college unmatched in size and prestige. Unfortunately for Wolsey, in 1529 he fell out of favour with the Tyrrhelian king after he had failed to negotiate an annulment of Henry's wife, Catherine of Aragon. Having been stripped of most of his titles, land and wealth, Wolsey was recalled to London to answer charges of treason, but died of natural causes during the journey down from York. Following his fall from grace, Henry took over Cardinal's College, immodestly rebranding it as King Henry VIII's College, before it was finally renamed Christchurch. As part of this restructuring, following Henry's break from the Catholic Church in Rome, Christchurch's chapel was made cathedral of the recently created Diocese of Oxford. This is why Oxford is a city and not a town as it would likely otherwise be. Ultimately, Wolsey would get his wish. 
Though he wasn't around to enjoy it, Christchurch has cemented itself as the grandest and most architecturally impressive of the Oxford colleges. This prestige has turned out to be somewhat of a poisoned chalice. Christchurch is far more popular with tourists than any other college in the city, and lamentably it often feels more like a museum or a theme park than an actual community, as the other colleges most certainly do. This was not helped by Christchurch's role in the Harry Potter movies, which is something I will talk very briefly about. You've now had the chance to have a good wander around the city, and I have no doubt that you've noticed the multitude of shops selling souvenirs, trinkets, and other Harry Potter merchandise. People from every corner of the globe now have this idea that Oxford played some kind of significant role in the Harry Potter films, but this is not, I say not entirely true, really not true at all. In total, just a few minutes of the movies were shot in Oxford. The Divinity School, which we spoke about in the second I think second or maybe third episode, played the part of the Hogwarts Infirmary and the Room of Requirement. New College's Cloisters hosted that scene in which Malfoy is transfigured into a ferret. And finally, a scene close to the start of the first film in which the new students have just arrived at Hogwarts and they're gathering on a stone staircase greeted by Professor McGonagall. Those stairs are in Christchurch and lead up to the college's mighty impressive dining hall. There's a popular misconception that would have you believe that the Christchurch Dining Hall was used as the Great Hall in Hogwarts. A misconception that Christchurch are only too happy to stoke. The truth is that the Dining Hall of Christchurch is actually not wildly dissimilar to the Dining Halls of many of the other Oxford colleges, and it was all of them really that acted as the inspiration for the Hogwarts Great Hall, which was recreated at Pinewood Studios um, on the way towards London. Big movie set. However, Christchurch would not have you know that, on a Saturday afternoon in July, the queue to get into the college could be a hundred metres long. Thousands of people, many dressed in tawdry Harry Potter garb, waiting to pay £12 per person. This the last time I looked, I wouldn't be surprised if it's increased since then. For a ticket to see the grounds of Christchurch, particularly the wonderful dining hall. Despite this Harry Potter connection, Christchurch truly is a stunning college and I'd highly recommend that you take the time to check it out if you can, if you have the time, if you can afford the ticket. That is, unless you are a die-hard Harry Potter fan, in which case I would probably suggest you stick it because you might find it a little disappointing. I once heard that the meadow entrance to Christchurch used to be where patrons would both enter and exit the college grounds, but the college had to move the exit over to their eastern gate on St Aldate's because there were so many tears spilt by young children whose parents had promised them Hogwarts and had ultimately not delivered. Please feel free to pause here and enter Christchurch if you can. At some point soon, I'll get around to recording an audio tour of the college grounds because there is a lot to see in there. As we mentioned already, the stunning Great Hall, the incredible cathedral, the Tom Quad as well. It's just a stunning place and I'd highly recommend you pop in if you can. When you're ready to continue, keep walking past the college towards St Aldate's. You walk through the magnificent War Memorial Garden from which there's a fantastic view of Christchurch to your right as you get to the gate at the end. Head out onto St Aldate's and up the hill to your right-hand side. After 100 yards or so, you'll walk past Tom Tower, the western entrance to Christchurch. I'm sure you'll notice the traditionally dressed college porters. Unfortunately, they are highly unlikely to let you inside, but you can get a nice view of Tom Quad. I've created a great album of Christchurch on the website. Again, check it out if you're so inclined. For now, continue up St Aldate's to Bear Lane, which is on your right-hand side. It's about 100 metres up from uh, the gate to Christchurch there. Around 100 yards down Bear Lane, you will come to The Bear, the oldest and possibly cosiest pub in Oxford. Feel free to head inside for a well-deserved drink. Throughout the colder part of the year, you're likely to see a couple of open roaring fires on the inside. It's a lovely place to chill out and get warm. The next chapter will start with the story of this wonderful pub before we head up to another one of Oxford's hidden gems, the Covered Market. I look forward to seeing you there.